The first Bible reading is Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 23. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, 
firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. The second reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you're worried about that reading, the first one, God rescues them, just in case you were. You know, it was a resurrection. Yeah. Let me pray. Father, fill us with all joy and hope in believing by the power of your Holy Spirit, and for Jesus' sake, amen. So tonight we start a new series, Alternatives to Christian Hope, and their antidotes. Why? Well, our theme for 2023 has been transforming hope. And while the last series was about hope, the book of Hebrews, you know, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. Well, we've decided to return directly to the theme and add something new. And the something new we're adding is very simple. Namely, that the human heart can default easily to a counterfeit option alternative hopes out of fear or anxiety or loss or just forgetfulness. Our hearts can choose an alternative and it has ever been thus. The Israelites were on the cusp of the promised land when they said to Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 14, they said, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So you've got a choice. The hope of the promised land to come and with it suffering the wilderness. Or alternatively, Egypt, back to Egypt without suffering. And you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Weren't we slaves back there? The human heart forgets. And so we choose alternatives, true 3,500 years ago, true 3,500 years later. The idea of back to Egypt is a metaphor, really, of choosing an alternative hope. It's a metaphor to this day, and you might remember those of age. Keith Green turned it into a song and an album in the 1980s. Many of us know the correct answer, of course, My hope is in God, it's in Christ's resurrection, the future's secured, new heavens and the new earth, Um, 
all that. If God has poured out his love into your hearts by the Holy Spirit, you know all this to be true. And yet, the human heart afraid, the human heart anxious, the human heart forgetfulness is an, un, is an unruly thing. And fear is captivating. And so we go back to Egypt in our hearts. Our four alternatives, there are more of course, but our four back to Egypt's over four weeks are optimism, nihilism, stoicism, and progressivism. Met a guy this morning who said, I don't normally come to church, but I'm coming now for four weeks. See, you like the series. This week, uh, optimism, that's the alternative. Five questions, if you're following the outline or writing notes, both of you, in the news sheet, old joke, you know, self-deprecating. What is Christian hope? What's the alternative for today? Why it's an attractive alternative, we're gonna be nuanced, but why it's not a legitimate alternative, not to Christian hope, and what is its antidote? So firstly, what is Christian hope? Well, Christian hope at its base is scaffolding. Deep, strong, carefully planned, lovingly laid, divine scaffolding for the human heart. Put there or designed to build confidence when none seems reasonable, resilience when you're knocked down, and strength in a vulnerable life, in persecution, even in death. And all this not because confidence, resilience, and strength are desirable characteristics in a human life, which they are. You can see you know, hundreds of schools around Australia would choose those three words as their you know, values. But this is not because confidence, resilience, and strength are desirable characteristics and therefore should be secured from any source. Resilience training is a good idea, no doubt but rather that Christian hope is a very specific thing with a very specific source. I, don't, I mean, if you've got resilience from another source, I don't want to take that away, but you should know that Christian hope is a very specific thing with a very specific source. It's God's scaffolding placed around your heart by God ahead of him ushering in his kingdom in which Jesus Christ is king. We have a sure and certain hope not just wishful thinking. Now it is true that everyone who chooses to live has hope. Someone once said, a man can live for 40 days without food, three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but for only one second without hope. Meaning everyone who chooses to live hopes for something. It's why people get up in the morning, even if it's for a fun time or food or love. But I would submit to you tonight that many people's hope is flimsy scaffolding. Now don't mishear me, I'm not trying to denigrate anyone's hope, I'm not here to denigrate hope. But I wanna contend that it must be flimsy since there is no promise of fun. And no promise of food 
and no promise of love. It just seemed promised when we were younger. Where then is Christian hope to be found? Well, it comes from the promise of God. Promises God has a track record of keeping, and you can read about those promises every day in a Bible. So the writer of Hebrews says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? For he who promised is faithful. How about this for a definition of Christian hope and where it's located? This is mine. Christian hope is found in God's Messiah, in Jesus, as he ushers in the kingdom of God, promised of old, glimpsed in the present, but realized in the future, to be kept by the promise keeper and leaned into, lent into by those who currently cannot see it, it's not here, but we believe it nonetheless and are transformed by it. My hope is in Jesus. It's not, and in his kingdom, which is not plucked out of thin air, but promised of old in the Jewish scriptures. It's not fulfilled yet. Rather, it is glimpsed in the presence, and I love every glimpse of the promise of God, of the kingdom of God, but fully coming or realized fully in the future, which is why it's hope, who hopes for what they already have. But we believe it. Why? Because the promise keeper, capital P, capital K, has a track record, and so we lean in. Even if the circumstances are a little blind, the faith's not blind, you trust God, but the circumstances are often blind. But we believe it nonetheless, and indeed are transformed by it. How's that? Jesus said the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now Jesus said that at the heart of the Roman Empire, which I think about most days. In other words, at the heart of the Roman Empire, when Jesus saying the kingdom of God has come near, seems ridiculous to the weak. An example of such transformation from the Old Testament, no less, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who chose the fire rather than keep their lives. They had a hope in God, which is why they chose the fire. We'll come to them in a moment. Secondly, then, what is today's alternative? Well, today's alternative is optimism, which comes from the word optics, optical. Optimism is optics, to see the glass as half full, not as half empty. To look on the bright side of life. Optimists see the positive side of things. They expect things to turn out well. They hope for the best. As Australians used to say more often, she'll be right. She'll be right. There are, of course, enormous possibilities in optimism, but there are limits as well. I've heard this. Stay with me on this one. See if you think it's true. An optimist, is that you? An optimist will see a good thing in the particular, in the moment, and will assume it in the general, in all moments. This good thing happened to me, happening to me right now is how it will always be. Look, I found a car park. I always find car parks. You know, this sermon is okay. All my sermons are okay. 
Whereas a pessimist will see a bad thing in a particular in the moment and will assume it in the general in all moments. This bad thing happening to me right now is the way it will always be. I'm stuck in traffic. I'm always stuck in traffic. Sermon's lousy. All my sermons are lousy. Now you're thinking, which one am I? Where do I lean? Full disclosure, I am an optimist. If something good happens to me today, I assume it will happen again tomorrow. I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm a ridiculous optimist. I know a few of them. I'm told there's such a thing as toxic positivity. But I can largely see that optimism is a personality trait. One might have a cheerful temperament, perhaps nurtured by positive experiences in childhood or or over life. I do not think that optimism is an alternative to hope and certainly not to Christian hope. So as a thought experiment, I want you to imagine Shabbat, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, viewing that fire with an optimist's lens rather than God's lens. Daniel 3 is about God's kingdom coming, but not yet, so same as us in that sense. There is another king on the throne, a despot called Nebuchadnezzar, who held all the power. You heard it a moment ago, the king makes a law that everyone has to bow down to a statue of him, and if you don't bow down, you get thrown into the fire. He's not the first despot to act like a god, and not the last either. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow down. And right before they are thrown into the fire, you catch a glimpse of their hope. See, some of you think it's just because they're um, recalcitrant to human power, rebels like in Star Wars, you know, better to die on your feet than live on your knees. This is not them. They're tested and refined before the fire. And so they say, they don't bow down, they say to the king who's furious, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, just like Jesus says, when you come up before kings and governors, don't think about what you're gonna say, because you're not trying to affect the outcome. We don't have to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, 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 even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know we will not bow down. Where is their hope? Our God will rescue us. Their hope is in God. They're not optimists. Or at least you don't know if they're optimists. Could be either way. Their hope is also not governed by a desired outcome either to survive the fire. They don't use God as a servant of their self-hopes, which is pretty normal. That's verse 18. Even if he does not rescue us, we're not bowing down. How can they say that? And the answer is that they believe in God's coming kingdom. Why? Well, A, it's dripping through their Jewish veins. And B, they know, well, they might know chapter 2 of Daniel. A stone is coming that will topple the dark kingdoms of the world. We know that stone. He has a name. His name is Jesus Christ, who through his resurrection defeated the powers. That is, they had God's lens. But what would it be like if they were merely optimistic, if they 
simply carried the personality trait of optimism. I mean, they clearly score low on agreeableness, not bowing down. But what if they went to the fire with optimism? In that case, they'd see this negative situation. I'm not going to generalize. Um, something's going to happen here. Most people who get thrown into the fire by a despot get burnt to a crisp, but not us. We're optimists. They might have assumed that the best will happen. She'll be right. That on the way up to the fire, that something will happen. The king might grant clemency. Perhaps a revolt by his countrymen or a freak storm might put out the fire. Maybe they think they might die and they're thinking, look, let's look on the bright side of this. Maybe someone will write this down and people will be reading about it 2,500 years later. Maybe we'll be the sort of pin-up boy, the poster boys for non-violent dissent. Maybe that'll happen. And maybe by our actions, others might be encouraged to rise. And that sort of thing happens all the time in, uh, in revolutions. But this is not what they say. This is not their testimony optimism. What do they say? They say, our God will rescue us. Thirdly, why optimism is actually an attractive alternative. It's attractive because optimism, or the optimist, has power. If someone is always fearful and pessimistic, always catastrophizing, then we usually worry for them, and counselors often give them strategies for coping. But very rarely will someone say to an optimist, I can see that you're happy, sunny, and hopeful. Here are some strategies to cope with that. Unless, of course, there is a level of self-deception. Optimism has benefits. In the Forbes magazine a couple of years ago, I quote, in a recent study from Boston University, researchers have proved that women who look on the bright side of life have a 50% better chance of reaching the age of 85 or older. Similar for men. The article goes on, pessimists get sicker more often, and the super rich are often super optimists. I quote, people with temperamental cheerfulness live longer and healthier lives, and optimism is a dominant personality trait among exceptionally rich people. There's power in it. But I believe it fails to be on solid ground in the face of a shaky world of deep suffering, and certainly in the face of death. To lean on one's sunny disposition, surely this is what Proverbs warns against when it says to lean not on your own understanding. Monty Python famously concluded the life of Brian. I didn't put this image up in the morning service because I thought I'd get busted. Monty Python famously concluded the life of Brian with a song being sung to Brian on the cross. That's Brian, by the way, not Jesus. This is not blasphemy. What do they sing? <laughs> Always look up. <laughs> Always look on the bright side of life. When I was younger, I thought they were mocking Christ on the cross. But the truth is, Monty Python were mocking optimism or nihilism. We'll get there next week. Really, go home and YouTube it and tell me I'm wrong.
Third, fourth, why it's not a legitimate alternative to Christian hope. Optimism is not Christian hope. It's not a legitimate alternative, not the same thing at all. Terry Eagleton wrote a book about four years ago called Hope Without Optimism. He's not a Christian, from the left side of politics, has a Christian upbringing, but actually makes the same point that I'm making, that optimism is not hope. He makes the point without the Christian conclusion. Now stay with me on this. Can you stay with me on this? Listen to this. He starts the book with a frank admission. As for one whom the proverbial glass is not only half empty, but almost certain to contain some foul-tasting, potentially lethal liquid, I'm not the most appropriate author to write about hope. He's a pessimist. But he argues that optimism is not hope, rather it is just wishful thinking, coming from a sunny disposition. He writes, and I quote, there may be many good reasons for believing that a situation will turn out well, but to expect that it will do so because you are an optimist is not one of them. It is just as irrational as believing that all will be well because you are an Albanian or because it has just rained for three days in a row. And if there's no good reason why things should work out satisfactorily, there's no good reason why they should not turn out badly either. So that an optimist's belief is baseless. If you're gonna have hope, can't just be because you're an optimist, it's going to be from somewhere else. And so he goes on, not a Christian, remember? He hasn't got God as part of the equation. He goes on, authentic hope needs to be underpinned by reasons. It must be able to pick out the features of a situation that render it credible. Otherwise, it's just a gut feeling. Now, his purpose in writing this book is simple. He can see how young people today are moving towards despair. Young, humanitarian, raised without God, raised without the Christian narrative, which is almost everybody born after 1990, I would have thought. And he can see how those people in particular, but older people as well, have seen how things in our world have turned south. Climate change, toxic politics. You can see it even today in Australia and America. A loss of civility, erosion of trust, the general fear that the world is going to pot. And he can see why a young humanitarian atheist could end up being in despair. You know, how do you fight it? A world like that. So he wrote a book to try to help such a young person be hopeful. Section four is titled, Hope Against Hope. Now remember, he's not a Christian. We'll come back to that title. He writes, and I quote, the left needs to recognize that all the defeats it constantly faces, which make it momentarily withdraw with dread, consistently imply that if we feel negative, it's because there's something positive that we're still holding on to. Right? This sense that if I feel despair that things aren't right, then there, there must be something that's right. He doesn't go and explain how it comes from God. It's sort of plucked out of the air. The remainder is something to be hopeful about. To never fight and thus to never fail implies zero commitments and thus no hope. But to try and fail and fail again and again 
reveals a hopeful remainder in the human spirit. It's a humanist hope he speaks of. His point is, this is not optimism, but it is a hope, a hope that you might be able to muster if you don't have a Christian hope. But this is not Christian hope. When Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of the universe is long and it bends towards justice, the Reverend Martin Luther King, you can only say that if you believe in a God who owns the ark and can move the world towards the ark. Otherwise, it's just in the category of optimism. So finally, what is its antidote? Now, I chose the title before writing the sermon. Rookie mistake. Optimism isn't a poison needing an antidote, unless it's what they call toxic positivity, where a person denies, minimizes, and invalidates serious concerns. But there is a circumstance in which optimism needs an antidote, and that is when your optimism becomes a stubborn alternative to Christian hope, a way of, a way of holding God at an arm's length, a way of refusing the salvation offered in God through Jesus Christ. That's when optimism becomes a counterfeit hope, back to Egypt, a way of rejecting the gospel, a way of saying, she'll be right, instead of humbly listening to God. The antidote to optimism as Christian hope, that's a mistake, but the antidote is abiding faith in God over a lifetime. Abiding faith in God, not in self or in circumstance. And surprisingly, it involves something optical. It involves eyes, indeed, the eyes of your heart. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 8, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, maybe even here tonight, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. When the eyes of your heart have been opened, you don't merely believe that the best is yet to come because of optimism. You believe the best is yet to come because God promised it, a new heavens and a new earth. The eyes of your heart have been opened to Jesus Christ and his hope. This idea of, in Eagleton, of hoping against hope or hope against hope, where does that come from? This idea that Eagleton used to say, there's still something positive. It comes, of course, from Romans 4. Against all hope, hoping against hope. Abraham, in hope, believed God. And that hope isn't optimistic, although it sees things positively. Rather, it believes the promises of God now and beyond death through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This hope suffers, endures, and chooses the fire. This hope causes you to love and live for others. Your hope then is not in self, not in a sunny disposition, but rather a deep abiding trust in God. Let's pray. Father, the temptation for us to believe in what we see, if we're an optimist, 
temptation for us to believe what we see if we're pessimists is strong. Take our eyes, Father, the eyes of our heart, and show us Jesus Christ and the hope we have in him and the incomparably great power for us who believe. Show us for Jesus' sake. Amen.